Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast, and today I'm going to look at the crisis of the American labour movement in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Now, in a podcast I did about a month ago or so, I looked at the rise in union militancy uh, immediately after the war. Um, You can check that one out. Uh, It shouldn't be that far back in the archives. But now we're going to look at uh, what happens after that moment and how the uh, union membership fell between 1945 and about 1950, never really fully to recover. And it has a lot to do with the development of the American economy during these um, economic boom years and also um, the development of post-war American politics. As we previously discussed, wartime and post-war inflation ate into workers' wages and led to um, greater pay demands. And whilst heavy industry workers, particularly automobile workers, were granted uh, better pay claims, uh, these were actually pretty pretty attractive wages in comparison to workers such as um, uh, teachers and obviously agricultural workers. But one of the claims that um, the, the CIO particularly was after, um, and the union leader Walter Reuther, um, was the um, ability to intervene on the shop floor, to be able to have a role in workplace management. And this was uh, by and large denied. Uh, This kind of um, union uh, labour corporatism had obviously been a feature of uh, British post-war economic life um, coming to a, a crashing end in Great Britain in the 1970s and was fairly commonplace um, across the continent in Europe uh, but was really quite an, an, an alien practice in America and was strongly resisted by, by management. What the unions wanted from management was evidence that it couldn't afford uh, better wage uh, offers to the workers. The fear uh, that was uh, put to the workers by management was that if wages go up, therefore so must prices. And uh, Reuther's argument was no. 
if wages go up, then profits, therefore shareholder dividends, will have to come down a little bit. And the war had been such a bonanza time for companies such as General Motors and Boeing that it was only fair that the workers should share in some of that prosperity. This was uh, derided and denounced by management as the attempt to introduce socialist ideas into the workplace if managers and uh, business owners could not determine the level of profit they would make if they were beholden to the workers this was nothing short of uh, creeping Bolshevism in their eyes and there was a strong relationship between support for new anti-socialist and anti-communist measures in America and the need to clip the wings of a newly emboldened workforce. It's very difficult for us to be able to say for sure whether Reuther was right, as much of the economic data was kept a closely guarded secret at the time. But what we can say for certain is that the approach of um, the unions in this regard um, and the resistance from management was a key factor in developing workplace tensions throughout the period and also a key factor in fueling um, in elite uh, business and political circles uh, moves towards an anti-communist um, backlash. But really, that's kind of code for a anti-New Deal backlash. The second New Deal had obviously been uh, of enormous importance to the organised working class and had been uh, part of Roosevelt's bid to empower the union movement uh, and empower labour. And whilst there was probably no prospect of a communist takeover in America, there was certainly the prospect in the eyes of management of um, a proletariat that had too much power and too much say. And much of the um, anti-communist hysteria and the McCarthyite period was about breaking the power of organised labour and undoing some of the achievements of the New Deal. Obviously, the achievements of the New Deal have limped through all the way into Reagan's era and beyond, and every successive Republican president, with perhaps the exception of Eisenhower, has sought to um, shear more uh, of the New Deal provisions away. The wage demands that the unions were eventually able to secure towards the end of the 1940s were fairly, uh, fairly minor. From 1948 onwards, in the contracts of most blue-collar workers were uh, provisions called COLA agreements, uh, COLA standing for Cost of Living Agreement. Uh, and this meant that uh, wages would keep uh, up with inflation and no more, that they would um, simply mirror the increases in cost of living and would not really constitute actually a pay rise. Pricing, therefore, shifted out of the hands of the unions and was more driven by uh, the, the cost of living. So the um, wage levels were determined really by markets as opposed to by the pressure of organised labour. That said, most labour contracts were um, uh, laden with various attractive provisions that hadn't been uh, in existence 
before the war, such as health insurance, life insurance, um, vacations that were paid, and old age pension provision. The blue-collar job of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s was a an important um, keystone within America's social contract. There have been arguments put forward recently in the various debates surrounding uh, Obamacare and uh, single-payer healthcare as to why it is uh, American working-class voters have uh, on, uh, consistently rejected this, and uh, it's been suggested that the uh, provisions that were private, the blue, the attractive blue-collar jobs where there was private health care provision, um, these kinds of jobs which kind of evaporated in the 80s and 90s, still have a strong um, resonance within American um, memory and American political discourse. And it's these kinds of uh, privately provided, very attractive, um, very um, rich um, uh, positions where there is a, a broad base of um, health care and pension provision that are really hankered after. Uh, and these were um, the roles which were key in establishing um, the kind of labour aristocracy of the, the mid-century period, the, this kind of economic golden age which is, is looked back on. And state provision is uh, seen as something fundamentally inferior to this. In, in some quarters, I should add that. Obviously, not everybody has that point of view. These provisions, um, health insurance, life insurance, that kind of thing, were not given lightly by American capital. These were not the nice gifts that beneficent um, corporations gave down to their workers. These were acquired by labour organisation and the historically unprecedented um, moment offered by the Second World War, where organisation and opportunity present themselves, um, grassroots organisations like labour and civil rights organisations generally tend to be able to make advances. And these are the kinds of things that have been whittled away uh, ever since. It would be the uh, market fundamentalists later on, uh, the Freedmanites, the um, Chicago Boys, the University of Chicago uh, economists, um, and um, Hayek and Mises and all the uh, various um, Montpelierian society um, economists that claim that this would lead to poor labour mobility, that workers would be locked in with their uh, attractive golden handcuffs and wouldn't be able to uh, move around the marketplace, the labour market, to where they were, were better suited. Um, and the gradual uh, erosion of these um, working rights and uh, working entitlements uh, perhaps from the 1970s onwards, um, were really the, the product of this thinking and the fact that the American economy from um, the 1970s onwards shifts towards um, uh, the predominance of finance and financialization. Now, I did do a podcast some time ago on this very topic area about the birth of neoliberalism under Nixon and uh, Paul Volcker. Uh, and you can find that somewhere in the archives. I did it uh, earlier on this year. 
these sorts of uh, mass provision of uh, benefits, um, uh, workplace benefits, were normally um, from major employers such as Ford and Chrysler and United Steel and Dow Chemical and, and things like that. Uh, smaller companies were less able to provide them and the main beneficiaries were largely white working class men. Uh, women, uh, black and ethnic minority workers uh, generally fared significantly worse in the job market when it came to acquiring um, labour that was well paid, well remunerated and had attractive additional benefits attached to it. At the end of the war, it was hoped by uh, many of Roosevelt's uh, key advisers, members of the Democrat Party, key uh, fellow travellers on the liberal left, uh, that the New Deal would be expanded, that social security uh, would be extended to um, workers, casual workers such as farm labourers, domestic staff, um, waitresses, and the the kind of non-unionised workforce. And it was also hoped that uh, there would be a greater expansion in education provision and a hope that there would be minimum wage, uh, higher minimum wage legislation anyway, and new um, government-provided health insurance, not dissimilar to the health care that was being planned, the National Health Service that was being planned in Great Britain. The National Health Service was, of course, instituted in uh, 1948, but there had been uh, a report, the Beveridge Report, written by... Uh, Ernest Beveridge, the uh, civil servant, the liberal civil servant, uh, in 1942, um, which uh, identified uh, four ills, of which uh, one was disease, and called for some kind of national provision of health care. And so it was uh, known that had Labour uh, got into power, their manifesto in 1945, uh, announced the prospect of a a national health service and this was uh, viewed around the world as a generally uh, positive achievement from the point of view of people uh, such as New Dealers in in America. Union leaders by and large supported these goals and, of course, uh, America's working class was generally um, Democrat voting. But the attractiveness of private benefits, of private health care, private old age uh, pension provision uh, was such that whilst there was commitment to these laudable uh, goals, the union uh, leadership became less and less active in its enthusiastic support. And often union rank and file saw it as uh, simply an opportunity for non-unionised, non-industrial labour and often non-white labour to benefit at their expense. There were men on production lines up and down America that said, well, I already have a company pension plan. If I vote for policies that create universal pension provision uh, or universal health care provision, then really I'm voting for my taxes to go up with no additional gain for me. And I'm voting for uh, people in uh, 
industries that are not unionised to benefit, and these people have nothing to do with me, and I'm voting perhaps for black workers to benefit, and they have uh, opposing economic interests to me. They work for less and compete for jobs like mine, and there may have been, been perhaps even more racist thoughts um, combined with that. So what we can see here is that during a period of privatisation of social welfare in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the uh, politicisation of the unions, politicised as they were inclined to be towards the left, begins to decline. And in fact, the, uh, the view that unions are there to campaign for social change also diminishes. Instead, the unions have a more functional industrial role, representative of, of the members. They're sort of more kind of an insurance club for the membership um, to ensure that uh, management looks after, after the workforce. Any greater ideological role for the unions um, is, is diminished. And the unions are starting to lose members, or indeed the membership is growing extremely slowly. Five years after the Second World War, there were only 15 million unionised workers um, in the USA, which was only slightly higher than actually 1945 itself. Um, the unions had only uh, 31.5% of non-agricultural employees. So of all the industrial, service sector and white-collar workers in America, the unions only had one-third of, of those. This was actually lower than in 1945. So 4% of workers in the non-agricultural sector between 1945 and 1950 had actually left trade unions. That might be for a variety of reasons. It might be people leaving the labour force for all sorts of reasons. Um, and in 1960, the unions had 17 million members, but still had only 31.4% of a larger non-agricultural workforce. So uh, between 1950 and 1960, they'd actually lost 0.1% of the overall non-agricultural workforce they gained 2 million uh, members, but this is obviously at the height of the baby boom, where the workforce is dramatically greater. So the union membership had stagnated, if not started to decline, in the 15 years after the Second World War. Now, why is this? Well, in part, it's because a large number of new jobs that were created tended to be white-collar. So the um, heavy industries... Uh, expanded more slowly after 1945. Um, again, this is because they had probably reached their height during the Second World War. Um, that they during the 19 between 1918 and 1945, they'd grown rapidly and reached a, a natural finite size, given the shape and structure of the American economy and other sectors begin to boom. Service sectors. And white-collar workers don't congregate in their thousands or perhaps even tens of thousands 
Um, they can they uh, work together in their tens, their dozens, their hundreds at most. And these workers are much more difficult to unionise. Getting several thousand of them in one place is a lot harder. They are generally um, atomised, and there are work white-collar workers who consider themselves to be more empowered in the workplace, better able and more skilled to pay bargain on their own, to walk from one job at the height of an economic boom into another and don't really see the, the need for um, collective pay bargaining. Women moved in and out of the workforce, especially as a result of childbirth and marriage. And these women are particularly difficult to unionise, especially uh, black women in uh, southern states who work in service were extremely difficult to unionise, given the economic and social constraints upon them uh, and the uh, ever-present threat of racial violence against them, and the various institutional racist and sexist um, cultures that existed within the trade union movement to start with. But overall, the atmosphere in the 15 years or so after the end of the Second World War uh, of a profoundly uh, anti-union and uh, anti-collective uh, business environment where business leaders and uh, political leaders were happy to closely collaborate uh, against um, union organisation and saw um, union organisation and collective pay bargaining as almost an existential threat to America in the Cold War environment. This was a key factor in uh, drowning out um, support for the unions and discouraging union membership, so much so that... When you examine uh, the rise of the career of Ronald Reagan, for example, in California from the mid-60s onwards, the ideas that he is articulating, um, these kind of uh, Ayn Randian notions of rugged individualism, um, of uh, defence of uh, entrepreneurialism from uh, unionisation and collective action and, worst of all, the state in his mind... Uh, um, make a, a certain kind of sense, even though these were, you know, largely eccentric and fringe ideas before the crisis decade of the 1970s, when they really take hold and develop and seem to kind of make some kind of sense. Um, it shows you the level of anti-union antipathy that existed in America up until that point. President Truman himself was a, a key contributor to. Um, the downfall of the union movement. Here you had a president who considered himself to be a new dealer, who believed in a fair deal for America's working classes and sided with the interests of blue-collar workers um, by and large. But he was extremely angry at union militancy at the end of the war, didn't understand it and didn't accept it, and saw that the process of transition to a peacetime economy uh, was being disrupted um, by strikes, um, particularly the strikes of January 1946, which we mentioned in the, the previous podcast. Um, and he 
became determined to prevent a railroad strike um, in 1946. Um, he negotiated uh, with the uh, rail unions, the Brotherhood of Railway Trainmen and the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. And on the, at the moment that he thought he'd managed to broker a deal, uh, both union leaders, uh, A.F. Whitney and uh, Alvin Lee Johnson, of the res- both unions respectively, uh, walked out of the agreement. These were all friends of Truman. Um, and Truman um, said to them, and I quote from James Patterson's Grand Expectations, If you think I'm going to sit here and let you tie up this whole country, you're crazy as hell. Um, Whitney responded, We've got to go through this, Mr. President. Our men are demanding it. Truman added that they had 48 hours to find a settlement, and he said, If you don't, I'm going to take over the railroads in the name of the government. Interestingly, that this is the approach. Truman had um, a mindset that had been shaped by the war years of um, government intervention in the economy. Um, The government essentially runs the US economy during the Second World War. And the idea that all parts of the country were not now coming together to um, act in common cause. It was really antithetical to what most um, bureaucrats and politicians had understood about the kind of um, the, the workings of society during the war years. When the railway workers went on strike on um, Friday the 24th of May, um, Truman stormed into his cabinet meeting and said that he would go to Capitol Hill and demand anti-union laws. The law that he proposed was something as draconian as the anti-socialist laws of Bismarck uh, in the 1880s. It demanded the right to draft striking workers into the army, irrespective of um, age or how many dependents they had, and this would threaten workers with military conscription whenever there was the threat of a walkout that conspired to create a nationwide stoppage or a national emergency. He equated the union leaders with communists and said, every single one of the strikers and their demagogue leaders have been living in luxury, working when they pleased and drawing four to forty times the pay of a fighting soldier. Let's give the country back to the people. Let's put transportation and production back to work. Hang a few traitors and make our country safe for democracy. And this is a familiar trope that anti-union presidents and business leaders have used in pretty much every country in the Western world uh, in the post-war era, the idea of the pampered worker, the entitled uh, luxurious worker who um, really doesn't know what a hard day's graft actually is. Of course Truman's cabinet was horrified and they attempted to tone down what Truman had to say. They tried to calm him down and they um, uh, prevented him from saying much of all this in his evening uh, radio um, uh, dispatch to the, to the nation, his, his fireside chat. But the next day, when he went to Capitol Hill, it was well known that these were the kinds of things that Truman wanted to say. When he entered the House, he received a standing ovation, and he outlined these proposals, by the time it's finished, um, John Steelman, who was Truman's Labour advisor, um, who was listening, um, said that the unions had settled on the proposals that um, Truman had laid out to avoid this legislation going through. 
The settlement was passed on in a note to Truman, who read it out to the House just after his speech and received rapturous applause, and the whole business was seen as a huge victory for him. Um, the New Republic magazine, um, along with The Nation, one of the leading liberal publications at the time, um, called this the most vicious piece of anti-union legislation ever introduced by an American president. Of course, it wasn't finally introduced. Truman dropped his draconian demands, and some people might say, well, this was simply a piece of political theatre and brinkmanship um, to bluff the unions, uh, but one can't help wondering how serious Truman actually was. Now, there are a series of other developments which we're going to focus on in a, a subsequent podcast. This one's gone on for far too long, so we're going to stop it here. Um, but we'll return to the issue of American labour relations soon. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. And if you want to pop by the Explaining History Facebook page, say hi and have a chat about what we discuss here on the podcast, that'd be great. And also, if you can give us a good thumbs up on iTunes, that'd be much obliged too. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.